Hello, curiosity seekers. Welcome to Dissecting Medical History. I'm Ange. I'm a travel nurse, medical history enthusiast, and your host. If you're looking for a storytelling formatted podcast with fun and fascinating topics on history and bios, then you are in the right spot. Please note this is not in any way medical advice. If you have anything that's ever discussed in any of the podcast episodes, please seek medical attention. Now, let's get this story started. Hey there, I'm recording this episode from a hotel in San Francisco. I debated taking a couple weeks off of podcasting while I was finding a new place to stay in my new assignment, but I really wanted to do this episode in honor of Black History Month. With that said, because I need your forgiveness on all of the background chaos that's going on. I have neighbors with kids, the housekeepers are doing their thing with the vacuums, I have a stomping person upstairs that I think is doing some Jane Fonda aerobics. Also, the windows are really thin, and I can seriously hear every car that drives by, except for those fancy electric cars they have here. And then there's that occasional sports car that likes to show off their acceleration skills with the light, or a really loud motorcycle. So, with all that said, I'm really sorry. Forgive me. I did a playback. It didn't seem too bad, so hopefully you won't be annoyed by it. At the moment, I'm right off of Lombard Street. That's the street with the famous crookedest, crookedest street in the world. I found out, though, the other day that there is another crooked street here. And actually, that one might have more crooks than the other famous crooked street. It's not as well kept. It doesn't have a clear view of the bay. And it isn't surrounded by flowers and mansions. But it has a lot of lovely trees. And it was kind of cool. I was the only one on the street. Whereas the other street is like tons of cars trying to go down at two miles an hour. Although I do recommend doing it anyway because it's pretty cool. And it is really pretty. And it's a thing to do while you're in San Francisco. But in case you're wondering, the other one is on Vermont Street between 20th and 22nd Street. Uh, Lombard Street actually was named after another street from Philadelphia. There's not a lot of crazy history on it. The reason that they built that crooked street in the first place was because back in the 1920s, they thought that steep grade was just too dangerous. So they made this crooked street to make it a little safer. And thus it worked, but no crazy history there. Anyway, let's get on to today's story. That's why you're all here, right? You don't want to hear about some crazy crooked street. So, I thought it was about time I highlighted a nurse. And what better time to do that than during Black History Month? Today's story is about Mary Eliza Mahoney. She is the first African American to graduate from an American nursing school in 1845. But, okay, before we dive into Mary's life, I want to back up, back way up. Because before there was nursing schools available, what, what did you do to become a nurse? How did you become a nurse? How did you get that title? I wanted to do that little background because it's such an accomplishment to be the first to graduate from a school. So I wanted to show how it really has some meaning. So 
In my episode, The Philly Plague of 1793, well before Mary graduated from nursing school, there was many black nurses that came to the rescue of the city's staffing crisis. But how do these nurses get their education? Well, how does, how does even the midwives become midwives? How does anybody become anything? <laughs> I went to the dictionary, which defines nursing as a, as a very broad and simplistic terms. The practice of profession of caring for the sick and injured. So with a field that is so diverse like nursing, the definition really does need to be broad. But the part of the definition that I found that was most important was the word caring. To be a nurse, a person really does need to be caring, figuratively and literally. And I think that's the one commonality that all of nursing has throughout history. The first recorded aspects of nursing as a profession was around 300 AD in the peak of the Roman Empire. They tried putting a hospital within every town and staffed it with nurses to assist the doctors. The Byzantine Empire had further innovated the nursing profession by having two fully developed hospitals in Constantinople with male and female nurses. This was a huge deal and was very influential on a global scale. Now, during the Middle Ages, as the Catholic Church was growing, so did their care for the sick. Nuns were nursing the sick and afflicted. And then another way for nurses to learn was from doctors who were teaching in groups or by individuals how to be a doctor's assistant. Now, throughout all of history, nurses were learning to, to be nurses in a simple way, by apprenticeship. Experience and opportunity was how one became a nurse. The other way was learning from practices passed down from the family. For example, the pilgrims in the U.S. did not bring with them doctors. No, it was expected that the females were to take care of the sick, and that knowledge was passed down from generation to generation, which included uses in plants and herbs for healing. Anyway, all the ways of becoming a nurse have one thing in common, besides the caring part, was that they weren't consistent in their information. They were specific to whatever the job was to be. If they were training with a midwife, then they would learn all the things about caring for the mother-to-be and then delivering of the babies. If it was during a war, they learned how to take care of certain kinds of injuries of war, such as bullet wounds or amputations. If it was in the church, they might be learning how to take care of those in leper colonies. Nursing school started becoming popular just about the time Florence Nightingale put forth her standards of care. The first nursing school in the U.S., Bellevue Hospital School of Nursing in New York, was based off the principles that Florence Nightingale implemented already in England in, 19, in 1860. By the 1900s, there were 400 more nursing schools. So just within the 40-year span, there was 400 more schools. And keep in mind, these schools were not quick to allow women of color. Now, remember I mentioned Mary did not get her nursing certificate until 1879. And the first school was opened 19 years prior. So 19 years of oppression by these whites on women who wanted the education to, to become a professional nurse. All of this was a very simplified history of the nursing profession, but now we can get back to Mary's story. On May 7th, 
1845, Mary, who was the oldest of three, was born to Charles and Mary Jane Mahoney, who were freed slaves from North Carolina that had moved to Boston, Massachusetts. She was educated at one of the first integrated schools in the country, Phillips School in Boston. Now, Mary knew she wanted to be a nurse since she was a teenager, and she worked towards that goal by working in the New England Hospital for Women and Children. Side note, this was a hospital that was staffed by all females and serving only females and children until 1950. Mary worked there as a maid of all work, which meant that she did what was needed. She was a washer, a janitor, a cook, a nurse aide. They also had one of the first nursing schools, which was a 16-month, very intense program that Mary was finally able to join when she became 33. In her class of 42, only four completed the program. This was in 1879. Because of the public racial discrimination, she didn't want to go into public nursing. Can't blame her. It was a tough world out there. Instead, she did private care working with individual clients, mostly wealthy white females up and down the East Coast. She was very sought after. She did very well in this capacity. She was known for her patience, caring, efficiency, and bedside manner. In 1896, Mary joined the Nurses Association Alumni of the United States and Canada, the NAASC, which was later renamed the American Nurses Association ANA. Now, they were not very welcoming of black nurses, which I find so heartbreaking. I feel it should be coded in us that we treat everyone the same, no matter if it's inside the sick bed, hospital, private nursing, whatever, or outside. Because of this inequality, Mary co-founded the National Association of Colored Graduate Nurses, NACGN, in 1908. During the first convention, she was elected as national chaplain and given a lifetime membership. The group's mission was to get integration of black RNs into nursing schools, nursing jobs, and other nursing organizations. The NACGN did not have a lot of membership in the beginning, it wasn't until the group got a director that it really started to have an increase in membership. And they did very well, but in 1951, after the war, the ANA suggested that it take over the association. And after their members voted, they merged. One of the n remarkable things that the ANA did was to continue an award that the NACGN started, it's a mouthful, called the Mary Mahoney Medal, which is given to a person or group that promotes integration within their field and is given out still to this day, every two years. In 1911, Mary stopped doing private nursing and became the director of the Howard Orphanage Asylum in Kings Park, which is in Long Island, New York. But I want to take a sidetrack here for just a minute and talk about the orphanage's history. Just after the Civil War, freed women were coming north with their children to find work. However, 
The places that they could find work were usually domestic positions, and they would not let them keep their children. It was a decision no mother should have to make, but one that they were having to make to survive. Orphanages at the time were not allowing black children, so a woman named Sarah Tillman started to care for them. At one point, she was caring for 20 children at a time. There was such a need to take care of these children that she got help from Henry Wilson, a minister who got funding from General Oliver Howard, the Howard University namesake, and they started an all-black staffed orphanage. Even their teachers, their board of directors, everybody. The orphanage faced some hard times with mismanagement of funds, and they placed someone else in charge of it. And then they also ended up having some overcrowding issues, and so they ended up moving to their new home, which was the Long Island place where Mary uh, started working. And Mary was only there for two years. The orphanage later was shut down in, in 1918 after an incident of frozen pipes that caused some of the children to need amputations from frostbite. I guess there was some pipes that had burst and the floor was frozen. The children had um, tried to heat their frozen feet at the stove, which also caused damage. So then they needed some amputations. So they, those children were moved to another orphanage, and this one was shut down. Anyway, back to Mary. After Mary retired, she was still a champion of women's rights. She had been all her life. And in 1920, she was one of the very first to register to vote. A few years later, though, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And after a three-year fight, she died at the age of 80. In 1993, Mary was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in Seneca Falls, New York. Her gravesite was turned into a memorial site in 1973 by Helen S. Miller, who was a recipient of the Mary Mahoney Medal in 1968. She had led a fundraising campaign in order to erect the site. Now, it's nothing big. It's it's um, a bigger type of oh, what do you call it, a gravestone, but it's not really a gravestone. It's a little bit, it's bigger than that. I'm not sure what it was before that, but I'm going to post a picture of it on Instagram. Um, and there's, there is also an organization called the Mary Mahoney Professional Nurses Organization. They give out scholarships and financial aid to African heritage students pursuing studies in professional nursing. Their membership is open to any registered nurse of African heritage who are committed to their mission and goals. So if you want to find out more about that, you can find them on marymahoney.org. And that is the story of Mary Eliza Mahoney. All right, I have another story for you. This one is about Estelle Massey Osborne. This next nurse I want to tell you about was the first black woman to earn a master's degree. This remarkable woman was the first black through many doors. But first, let's go back to her beginnings. Estelle was born May 3, 1901 in Palestine, Texas, to Hall and Betty Estelle Massey. She was the eighth of 11 children. Her father was a handyman and a farmer, and her mother worked with domestic jobs. 
and although her parents were not educated, they felt very strongly that their children should be, and all of them received at least a two-year college education, which is quite an accomplishment of the day. The boys of the family would raise money for the family by selling livestock and produce. Mrs. Massey did not want her children to work for whites until they were adults in order to build up their confidences. She wanted to delay the harsh reality of white oppression until they had a good understanding of self. Estelle went on to graduate as a teacher from the Prairie View State College, and she was teaching for two years, but there was some type of violent act that happened that almost killed her, and so she decided she wanted to do something different. So she went up to St. Louis where her brother was. He's a dentist or was a dentist, was living up there, and she wanted to follow uh, in his footsteps. But him and his friends talked her out of it and said, no, maybe nursing would be better for you. They told her all the wonderful benefits of it. And she did go look into it and came back the next day and went ahead and enrolled. Though at first her heart wasn't in it, but... She did find her niche, and I'm going to be telling you all about it. It's going to read like the craziest resume you ever heard. I also read uh, that she didn't really care for the curriculum for that first for that school that she went to, but I don't know if uh, when she became head of the nurses there that she changed that or if that was something she had addressed at some point, but I did read somewhere that she she didn't care for it. Despite that, she did end up with the highest score on the nursing exam in 1923. She ended up becoming head nurse of the city hospital number two in St. Louis, like I said, and then between 1929 and 1931, she taught at the Harlem School for Nurses in New York City, which made her the very first black instructor at, at that school. Estelle was the first black nurse to receive the Julius Rosenwald Fund, and she continued her education at Columbia University, where she got a bachelor's in science in nursing, and then went on to get a master's of arts in the same school in 1931. Like I said, making her the very first woman to get a master's degree, very very first black woman to get a master's degree. In 1932, she married Dr. Bedford N. Riddle. In 1934, I'm just doing a whole chronological thing. Her life, she was a very busy woman, so it's almost just easier to run down in chronological order. Uh, A lot of these things are intertwined and overlapping, but bear with me. It's an interesting life. In 1934, she became a researcher and undertook studies of rural life for the Rosenwald Fund. This helped black colleges in the South get more federal funding. In 1934 to 1939, Estelle was the 11th president of the National Association of Colored Graduate Nurses, NACGN. Sound familiar? That's the organization that Mary Mahoney had started. Well, remember when I said that when the organization got a director, their membership went up? Well, that was because of Estelle. She was 
the one that hired that director with the plan of not only increasing membership, but helping to further eliminate racial discrimination. Between 1940 and 1942, Estelle was the first black superintendent of nurses and director of the nursing school at Homer G. Phillips Hospital in St. Louis. 1943, Estelle became a consultant to the Coordinating Committee of Negro Nursing for the National Council of War Service. All of these committees are such mouthfuls. She was the first black person to hold an office on the staff of a national nursing organization. She worked to end nursing school discrimination and succeeded in getting the Army and the Navy to lift their bans on black nurses. The Cadet Nurse Corps increased their black membership by a thousand. In 1946, Estelle received the Mary Mahoney Award for her contributions in opening up the professional opportunities for minority groups. 1947, that was a busy year for Estelle, she got a divorce from Mr. Riddle and then later married Herman Osborne, who was a public relations director at the United Mutual Life Insurance Company. By the way, she did not have any children with either spouse. She also became a faculty member at the Department of Nursing Education at New York University. 1949, she became a board member of the ANA and was made the official delegate to the International Council of Nurses in Sweden. I don't know what her duties were, but that sounds amazing and sign me up. In 1954, Estelle was Associate Professor of Nursing Education at the University of Maryland. 1959, New York University Department of Nursing named her the Nurse of the Year. That same year, she was the Assistant Director of the National League for Nursing. I know, again, this all seems like a dream resume, but believe it or not, there's, <laughs> there's more. She was the Chairman of the Local Program Committee, National Council of Negro Women, member of the U.S. Cadet Nurse Corps, advisor committee, advisory committee member of Harlem Hospital's School of Nursing, and member of National Association of the Advanced of Colored People and National Urban League. She was also inducted into the ANA Hall of Fame, and there is a nurses' education fund established called the Estelle Massey Osborne Memorial Scholarship at Fisk University. This lady opened doors and lived an incredible life in the service of others. And remember I said I wanted to bring you something from San Francisco? Well, Estelle retired to Oakland, which isn't far from San Francisco. Okay, that's not exactly what I was meaning when I was going to bring you something from San Francisco, but little coincidence, right? Just down the street. Anyway, she retired to Oakland, California, not far from San Francisco, and died at the age of 80. I couldn't find what she died of. I didn't subscribe to the New York Times. They did an obituary, and I didn't get to see if they mentioned that, what she had died of. Not that it matters, but she did live, live a long life, just as Mary Mahoney had left quite the legacy and I believe she also contributed to some books. I think maybe some education books, but I could not find those either. I just saw that she might have contributed as an author. So there is that as well. She was a very busy person. Um, but I think that her 
starting out in life wanting to be a teacher. Uh, she was a teacher at the elementary school children when she first started. And I think that love of educating really stood out in her legacy of work. She's an amazing person. I will put some pictures of her up on the Instagram for y'all to see. And that was the story of Estelle Massey Osborne. I hope you enjoyed it. And I will catch you in the next episode. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's mental vacation from your current life. If you did and are curious for more, please subscribe. Before you go, if you have anything to add to today's show or you have a topic that you think is worthy of dissection, please reach out on dissectingmedicalhistory.com or Instagram on dissectingmedicalhistory. Thank you and stay curious.